if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Welcome to the new chemist. We're glad you're listening. Feel free to download this podcast on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Here on The New Chemist, we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as careers, community, research, and COVID-19. We're happy you're tuning in. My guest today is Michael Washington. Thanks for joining me today. It is good to hear from you. Just briefly, I'll inform my audience about you. Michael Washington is an expert on designing socially conscious K-16 STEM enrichment programs. In 2016, she graduated as the ninth black woman to earn a Bachelor's of Science in Applied Mathematics from the Georgia Institute of Technology. Now, as a mathematics education doctoral student at the University of Michigan, she critically examines how undergraduate math courses can better support students, especially black students. In particular, she focuses on relationship building in the math classroom as a method to increase STEM engagement. Michael is also the CEO slash founder for Stimulation Escape Room, where they create stimulating educational experiences and resources that promote equitable anti-racist beliefs and practices. In her free time, she loves to nerd out binging space documentaries and roller skating. Please welcome Michael Washington. Thank you, Michael, for joining me today. It is good to have you here. It's good to be here with you, David. Yep. So let's get started. You know, I've looked at your profile and, you know, we knew each other from Georgia Tech and, you know, it's, you have worked really hard and you're currently in graduate school. So my question to you is, what have been your longstanding interests in the fields of math and science? Yeah, my long long-term like interest. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? So it has changed over the years. When I first was getting into college and was pursuing mathematics, it was definitely more about me just enjoying math. I enjoyed the process of doing it. I had no problem kind of struggling with math. I found that part to be very entertaining and interesting. Mm -hmm. But matriculating through Georgia Tech as a predominantly white institution, there were a lot of barriers I realized I was encountering just based off social things, like being able to make friends in math classes, which I really struggled with in undergrad, um, things of that nature, that now my interest in the math and science field is more about access. How can I broaden access so that more folks can enjoy math or at least feel confident in their abilities to confront it whenever they need to? I'm not saying I need to do it all the time, but at least confront it. So my current drive with math and science has been about broadening that access spectrum where more folks can engage with it. That's where it is now, 
Yeah, that's good. That's good. Yeah, access is very important because, you know, access provides opportunities and helps people to grow and develop and reach their career goals. So I've seen, I've seen the work that you've done. So how have you been adaptive and creative in the field of mathematics? <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of interesting things when it comes to math and science. So my, my niche is really in gamifying, um, gamifying entertainment, of programming, outreach initiatives. That's how I've been creative with math and science. Whenever I'm in a course, like even right now, I'm taking abstract algebra for my master's in math. And whenever I'm learning something, I am thinking about how can I make this like palpable and reachable for anyone at any age? If I wanted to present this information to a six-year-old, how could I break this down in a way where they can also understand the same advanced mathematics that I'm experiencing now? Because I don't see any reason as far in math as I am now, I actually see no reason why other folks, no matter their age, no matter their skill level, could not understand what's going on. Hmm. I think it's just a matter of this idea of elitism and college and universities that it's, it must be much harder. And I think it's more about the people who's presenting the information to you. They could present it the right way in a way that reaches the right person and not just make it generalizable for 30 people, but talking about that individual so anyone can enter into this field. Mm-hmm. Not saying that everyone needs to still, because everyone has their own interests. I don't like putting math on that high pedestal. Like we all need to do math. There are other fields and other areas that are just as prestigious to me that deserve that same amount of respect. I agree. So I've seen you, you did some work with um, stimulation, the stimulation escape room. Mm-hmm. So uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yes, I have that shirt on right now. Yeah. That's what I was actually doing this morning. So Stimulation Escape Room, we are a edutainment company. So by edutainment, we are creating educational products, educational services that are all related to entertainment and media. Mm-hmm. So the, our primary offering right now is the Space Box, which is our escape room in a box, where we set people in this Afro-futuristic universe where they're having, they have to help these astronauts figure out what virus is affecting them while they're up in space. So when you get your box, you have all this evidence, all these clues, voice wow. recordings, and other things going on where you have to use math, you have to use science, and you have to be socially conscious about what's going on to figure out why the virus is up there. So wow. that's like the, that is the meat and, what is it, not meat and butter, that's not the phrase, bread and butter, <laughs> what yeah. I like to do. It's creating yeah. sci-fi experiences. Yeah, that's good. That's very good. You know, that takes a lot of, creativity to come up with scenarios like that and yeah. a team so i can't so not doing it by myself pardon me i said and a team because i don't do it all by myself yeah it does require a team i've realized that you know you can have these visions and goals but if you don't have a team to support you you're not going to get as far as you could with the team at all yeah <laughs> so along the lines of teamwork how have you maintained vision and teamwork in your environment hmm how do you maintain think, that? Maintain the vision and teamwork in my environment. I think I do it by always checking in on the people I work with mm-hmm. as humans, not just as people who are working with me to get this vision idea out. I want to make sure that my writers, that my content creators also have a personal connection to what we're doing and that they either see what we're doing as a team as an end goal for them. Like they want to stay with us long term. I'm all, always on board for that. But to also understand that they have other dreams, they have other hopes, and I'm also here to connect and support them. I'm constantly 
with my graphic designer, if I see opportunities that I know fit to her interests, it's like, all right, well, how about you try this? Here goes a side gig you can do. Here goes a side hustle that you can do that I think you'll be interested in. Because I know you told me that you want to own a bookstore, that you tell me you want to do this. So here it is. So by always recognizing people for who they are, their wants and their desires, I think that is what helps the vision and the team stay together. Because yeah. it doesn't feel separate from their entire lives. Wow, that's good. Yeah, that, that's very important to connect with the story behind people's lives. Yeah, mm -hmm. to engage with that as you try to fulfill your mission and your vision. So how have you sought or found the right environment for you to thrive scientifically, intellectually, scientifically and intellectually, while valuing differences in culture and expertise? How did you, in, in essence or in other words, how did you find the right environment for you to thrive? How did I find the right environment for thrive to thrive? Um, I talk about this rather often actually where I think the best environment for me to thrive, I figured out in grad school and not in undergrad. Okay. So, well, uh, undergrad contributed because I had to see what didn't work for me to see what does work for me. Okay. So, hmm, where do I want to start with that? How do I thrive in these areas? So, for instance, in undergrad, I can think back on how self-conscious I was in a lot of my advanced math courses. I'll be, a lot of times, the only woman or the only black person, a lot of times only of both of those, in a lot of math courses and science courses. And when I would hear things from the outer world of, oh, there's not that many black folks who do this, there's not that many women who do this, that kind of messed me up a lot. It made me feel like, oh, am I really capable of figuring these theorems out? Am I capable of writing these proofs? I don't know. But once I got to grad school and now I'm doing my PhD in math education, I've been open to a whole new world of thinking that I never knew existed in math education and philosophy and sociology of how we all interact in humans, all the things that we may say in our heads but never really tell anyone else that's very common for all of us, especially in a math classroom. So when I started reading a lot of the research articles from my own studies about uh, what other researchers and scholars have studied about black students' um, abilities, the things that help black students the most in a classroom, now, when I go into a math classroom as a student, it's like, okay, I'm aware that I am, everything that's bothering my head, one, is not made up. It's very real. I'm not losing my mind. I'm not crazy. Two, I know that a lot of the issues that I may be feeling are my fault or actually not my fault. It may have, it may actually have something to do with the structure of this math department, with the way that these professors are not trained to actually be teachers. It may have to do with the way that I know that I thrive off of personal and social connections. That's when I feel comfortable enough to be myself and not feel like I'm trapped in my head. So if I'm not connecting with my professor, if I'm not connecting with a TA, if I'm not connecting with a classmate, it's less likely that I feel I'm going to thrive in that math classroom. But now that I'm aware that those are the things that I needed to succeed, I can seek after it. I can be very deliberate when I'm trying to connect with my professors. Even if they don't want to connect with me, I know I need it. So it's like, I need you to talk to me a little bit more because that's the only way I'm going to be comfortable and not feel like I'm not capable of doing any of this. Yeah, so. that's good. Yeah, personal connections are very important. You have to have relationships. You know, I, I've, I've even noticed that, you know, even as you're progressing in your career, it's important to have relationships. And even when you achieve things, it's important to have relationships because relationships add like this long-term value to what you achieve. Because what is success yeah. if you can't celebrate with people? You know, it's, it's, it's quite yeah. empty. It's quite and empty. we're humans. We're very social beings. Humans, yeah, we period. We're not like, the thing that really can set us apart from a lot of other animals in the world 
is the way that we think, the way that we socialize. That's yeah. what makes us stand different. I don't want to say better, because there are a lot of animals that are doing better stuff out there than humans, but, <laughs> but that's what makes us very different, is the way that we socialize and interact with each other. That's true. That's true. So in terms of the areas of mathematics and diversity, what have been your most effective and impactful ideas? If you had to list a few, because you've obviously been working in the field for a while, you're getting your PhD yeah. in math education. So what, what would you list as some of your most effective and impactful ideas? Ooh. I honestly think what I'm working on right now has been one of my most impactful ideas. It's space box, stimulation, escape room, really going hard about experiential learning. I'm not a huge fan of traditional schooling, of 12 years of being in a school for five days out the week, eight hours a day. It feels like an overkill to me. And people could learn in much more casual settings and learn as they need things. So that's kind of also the push behind space spots and stimulation escape rooms that we're creating these uh, universes, these worlds that you're connected to these characters, you're trying to help them out, but you're also quote unquote, passively learning math and science to help them out. So now you're actually applying it to a real world situation, not just a word problem that you're focusing on for 10 minutes. This is like a two hour experience that you can do with your relatives, you can do with your family and figure it out and laugh together and not be so serious. I feel like we can be very serious about a lot of things that kind of just takes all the fun and interest in it. And that's not what I want math and science experience to be for anything that I put into the world. I want it to be entertaining. Okay. I want it to be taken much more lightly. Oh, yeah. So I think that's been one of my best ideas is how we're moving forward with a stimulation escape room. Okay, yeah, I completely, uh, I agree with you. You know, in that when you provide creativity in an environment, you create or you allow the concepts to be more accessible. But I have a question for you. Um, mm -hmm. Do you think rigor, do you think the rigor and the weight of the content complements it being so serious as it's uh, taught or instructed? Do you think that's the thing that's contributing to the seriousness that um, people normally associate with high level math classes or like abstract algebra or algebraic topology uh, equations or? I, I get what you're saying. I think that folks are. And not to put blame on anyone, I think it's just over time this has happened that we have mistaken rigor for this performativity. By performativity, the best way to describe performativity to me is when I think about the articles I read of Black kids getting punished more in math classroom because of behavioral, um, behavioral reasons or having instructors or teachers say that they're not good at math because of behavior reasons and not because of what they actually know. So there's this idea that if you sit still in the classroom, you do your homework, you only talk when I say talk, that's demonstrating your ability to be a math student, which I think is totally wrong. It still needs to be about how do they think about the concepts here. Don't worry about what their body is doing. That has nothing to do with what's going on in their mind and how they're thinking through the concepts. Mm -hmm. So when I think about rigor and these advanced math courses, a lot of these advanced math courses, people are looking at these predominantly white men in this field at a board, writing all these math equations on a board, which is definitely not how math always happens, period. <laughs> it's just all this stuff coming out your mind at one second writing on the board. It's more so about the way that you're taking time to think through problems. Most mathematicians are working on problems for years at a time. 
which is why it's still crazy that in a math classroom, we're, we're having students reproduce these theorems and proofs and calculations that took the original folks years to figure out. Hmm. But like, okay, now understand it right now, get it right now, and not giving enough time to think through it. So this idea of what it looks like to do math, performing, and wanting your body to be a certain way to show that you're capable, as opposed to actually having conversations and seeing how folks are thinking through problems. That's where the gold is in math, is how you're thinking. Yeah, that's true. That's very true, you know? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, the reality of the situation is, I think, and this is my opinion, and I think it has some weight, uh, some empir empiricism behind it, in that when we struggle with concepts, and when we work hard to engage with concepts and to really flesh them out and really associate things with them, I think that's when the real learning starts to take place. Not just in this superficial memorization. Because, you know, I've been in positions, I remember, and I'm just going to recall a quick scenario. I remember when I was learning about eigenvalues and eigenvectors. I was mm -hmm. able to repeat what the book said to the TA, the graduate TA. But I looked at him and I told him, I don't understand what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the performance, like this idea of just yeah. saying it. And I oh, here's, here's another good example of something I actually very disdain that a lot of instructors do back when we were able to be in class in person was, oh, have you ever heard of, eigen raise your hand if you ever heard of an eigenvalue. One person or maybe three people raised their hand out of 20. And it's like, oh, okay, well, let's just move on then. This idea that if folks raise their hand, you're assuming that they, one, that they absolutely know enough to understand whatever you're going to say next. But also, by moving on, you're ignoring the 17 other people who did not raise their hand yeah. and moving forward. Yeah. So when you are in front of a classroom physically, so pre-COVID, if you're in front of a class physically, they'll ask these like checkpoint questions, but I don't think those checkpoint questions are necessarily effective at the moment, unless you're gonna ask more questions or dive deeper into that question and why you're asking it. It's like, is it just, you just wanna see folks raise their hand and that gives you reassurance that you think that they're doing what you want them to do? So I'm always questioning things like for instructors, what are your objectives for a course and making those very clear with students and having students involved in that process of making objectives for a course? What do they want to get out of it? And how are you going to hold, how are y'all going to hold each other accountable? Make it fair. Wow. Yeah. That, that, wow, that's very good. I think that's, uh, that's some high level thinking because <laughs> you know, normally when you approach a classroom, you approach it, he's the expert, I'm the student, let me just sit down and take notes and learn, not there should be this reciprocity of I'm learning and you're learning, I'm engaging with the content, you're engaging, and you have a responsibility to uh, facilitate my engagement, just like I have a responsibility to learn and to cooperate with you as you teach yeah so. i never go into a classroom thinking that my students are here to just listen to me and learn from me i always go into a classroom knowing that i have things i can learn from them too there's so much i've learned in mathematics from my students ways that their instructors or past teachers have taught them to factor polynomials or think about other concepts differently that i have never been exposed to so I have to leave that space open and say, I'm also here to learn math with you all. I'm more so just a guide because I do know I have been, ex but here we go. I've been exposed to more. That's probably the extent of it. I've been exposed to more like proportion wise, but that does not mean I know more than you all. There's still concepts in math that I don't have a strong grounding on. Geometry, not my best suit. I don't advertise tutoring for geometry because it's 
something I still need to work on. Mm -hmm. There's so much more to learn. Yeah, there's so much more to learn. So, um, given that all your responsibilities and all your accomplishments, how do you maintain a balanced life? Mm. That's something that's happened this past year. So I can share a story with you what happened um, earlier, uh, the beginning of my third year. So actually this time last year, my first preliminary exam for my doc program. So this is one of the exams. So I have two exams that I need to pass before I become a candidate. And being a candidate, just for whoever's listening, being a candidate means that you're ready to start working on your dissertation. So I was working on my first preliminary exam, which was a paper that had to be written in two weeks. I had all summer to read these articles. The beginning of those two weeks, they gave me a prompt. And now I have to write this, I think like 10 page paper about it. I had a lot going on when the semester started and they kind of dropped the date on us sporadically, which was a whole nother situation. But during those two weeks, I had a total mental breakdown. I was so stressed that I had insomnia for like five, six days. I was not sleeping at all. I had no appetite. I felt sick all the time. And I had to forfeit out of my prelim. Like I can't finish this right now because something is totally wrong in my body that I feel so stressed by my classes. I feel so stressed by this preliminary exam that I don't know what to do. So I took a couple more weeks, actually a couple months to really figure out how do I maintain my productivity the way that I want without taking so much from myself. Because at what point was I stressed enough where I didn't even realize I wasn't eating enough? Like, how do you make it to that point where you realize that you're up all night and not sleeping at all? How, how did I stop listening to my body? The one thing I've been with all this time. So what I do now, I don't work, I do my best to not work past 5, 6 p.m. I don't schedule meetings at night. It's like no more work. I have to have time for myself to do what I want to do. I get up in the morning. I don't sleep with my phone in the bed, in the bedroom anymore, because I felt that became a huge distraction for me when, when I have to go to bed and when I wake up. Um, I take my time in the morning. I don't like to feel like I'm rushing. That way I can move into my day at a slower pace. Uh, I pick what days of the week are focused on certain topics. So there's just all these structures I put in place where I don't have to work 24 seven all the time. Yeah. And I realized by putting these barriers on how I spend my day and my time that I've actually have been more productive than I've ever been. Wow. In undergrad, I would be up all day, all night trying to get stuff done. It's like, I'm getting way more done by only working for eight hours a day or 10 hours a day as opposed to 24 and taking time for myself. Wow. Wow, that's good. That was really good. I could I could take it from that one. Yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read the I I you know, like I said. Most people who know me know that I'm a very upfront person, and I'm very I tend to be very honest. Um, but I'll say this, or and I'll say this. You know, many times, especially when you were first approach graduate school, like I'm like, like what I'm doing right now, just starting off in graduate school, you are almost in this. I almost feel like you need to constantly be grinding in terms of working and learning and researching and doing all these things because you want to advance in your career and stuff like that. But what you said is a valid point, you know, um, taking time for yourself is just as important as the work that you do. Mm -hmm. And you also said, you know, that it's important to listen to your body because you've been with your body this entire time. You should be listening to it. Yeah. Yeah. It says a lot of stuff to you all day. It says, it wasn't until I really started listening. It was like, man, I can't believe I missed all these signals. <laughs> and it also has me wondering how many times in undergrad was my body giving these signals and I totally ignored it all of those years. 
Like how many times was I really having a terrible day and didn't understand why? Whereas if I was as in tune as I am now, I probably could have fixed all those issues if I was paying that much attention. But woulda, coulda, shoulda, it's in the past. I've grown. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It's important to move forward, you know? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, as well, keeping all these things in mind, you know, I think by most standards of measurement, people could say you are a successful student in the field. So oh, wow. how, how, would you, how would you describe or characterize what's complemented to your success thus far? Oh. Mm. What would you say if you had the name? Was it mentoring? Was it uh, networking? Was it career opportunities? Was it your grit? Your determination? <laughs> the grit. That's always an interesting concept. Um, I think that it has been my social networks. Oh, yeah. That's really helped. I, birds of a feather flock together. I believe I've always associated myself with people who, one, have their own passions and goals in life that are very contagious. Having friends who are very passionate about things like, dang, I want to be passionate about my stuff. Just as much as you're passionate about your photography, just as much as you're passionate about sustainability, just as much as you're passionate about uh, water and engineering, it's, I want to be that passionate. So that helps a lot. And also, hmm. I'm thinking about this friends now in general and what they have done, I think, to my quality of life, where not only are they passionate, but the things that they will tell me of being inspiring and motivating. And whenever I'm feeling down or feeling like I'm not capable of knowing that they know me, they know me in a lot of ways that I probably don't even know myself, that I don't give myself enough credit for, that can set me right back on track. Yeah. So knowing, I know exactly who to contact when I need a boost about this. I know I need a, a, a boost about my academics. I know I need a boost about my entrepreneurship. I know the right people to contact who will give me that, that kick. Like, girl, stop tripping. You, you've been doing this all this time. You're very capable. I know you did this. I know you, I, and I actually love when friends do that because it's like, wow, I don't even realize how interconnected you are in my life all the time where you can name off all my accomplishments better than I can mm-hmm. and just like, all right, let me keep doing what I'm doing. You're right. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. Oh, this is a good, this is a good, good, um, good podcast interview because I feel like I'm getting inspired. Um, hey. <laughs> yeah. So, um, in terms of how, in terms of uh, your major as an undergrad, why did you choose applied mathematics? <laughs> so my junior year of high school, I took AP Bio. Okay. And if you talk to my call Anjali when she was a junior in high school, she was ready to be a veterinarian her entire life. She thought she was going to Tuskegee University to be a vet, period. But when I took AP Bio, I said, never mind. I'm not interested in this. Yeah. <laughs> I am not having a good time. <laughs> yeah. uh, my senior year of high school, I took AP Physics and Calculus. And that rocked my world. That was my, I had always loved math. But I had no idea that majoring in math was an option, and I had never had exposure to physics before. So taking AP Physics did a lot. My teacher was a, um, I think he's a Teach for America, and he graduated from Georgia Tech. So that was my first time hearing about Georgia Tech, and it was the first time being exposed to the idea of majoring in math. And when I look back to how much I love math over the years and how I did not like AP Bio, it was like, forget it, just major in math, do it. <laughs> okay. It seems like it was the option that fits 
for you. But once I started at Georgia Tech doing math, I started considering uh, computer science and physics. And which sometimes I kind of, I, I felt, given the math degree at Tech, I still had exposure to computer science and physics. But if I was ever able to do it again, I think I would be a physics major as opposed to a math major. Math major. Okay, cool. Cool. So my last question for you, Michael, is do you have any advice to those wanting to pursue the field you are currently studying in? Mm. You talked about a number of things like authenticity, you know, relationships, um, values, um, engagement, creativity. What, what would be your advice? Thank you for pulling those out. Thank you for pulling all those words out. That's helpful. My advice for anyone trying to go into this field, so for mathematics in particular, find your community. Find your academic slash social. They don't have to be the same networks. You can have different people that you socialize with that are not the same folks you're studying with, but you do need both. And they can be both if that's what happens. Find those people because they're going to be the ones to help you get through and you'll be able to help them. Do not go through that process alone. I went through a lot of my undergrad math alone, which um, something else I would do different was do a better job of trying to make those academic friendships. Yeah. Um, for math education on a doctoral level or for anyone who is in math now and wants and considering math education, I think it's hands down one of the best things you could ever do. You will become a better mathematician, period, by looking more into education theory and education articles and um, academia. The way of thinking about our world in a, from a social lens, a social perspective, while you're in a STEM field, will do you way more justice than I think anything else on a graduate level. I, I highly, even if it's just a master's, I think it will do a lot for you as a mathematician. Okay, wow. That's good. That's good. Yeah, because, you know, I, to be honest with you, I've also been considering, you know, I'm doing my degree in, in organic chemistry, um, specifically, mm -hmm. um, and I'm, I'm leaning towards doing a PhD as well, even though I'm in the master's program right now, because I have the opportunity to transition afterwards if I choose to. Um, mm -hmm. So, one of the things I'm considering is what I'm going to make my minor. I've selected something, but I'm also considering the fact that <clears throat> I want to serve as a professor in academia. So mm -hmm. education would be something that would complement to me as I make my career decisions. Um, so you will yeah. stand out. Pardon if me? You, if you will stand out so much. Cause when you think about a lot of your professors you had over the years, most do not have any training in education. It's That's just, true. they have knowledge. So if you have training in education theory and what it means to work with people and the belief systems that exist within education, you will, you will certainly stand out as a professor, <laughs> without a doubt. That's good, that's good. Well, Michael, thank you so much for joining me today. It was good to have you on. I was really excited. Thanks for listening. We're glad you were able to tune into this podcast. Once again, this is The New Chemist, where we discuss chemistry, which simply put is the science of change, as well as the other sciences, careers, community, research, and COVID-19. Thanks again for listening. Note, the views on this podcast represent those of my guests and I.